Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, buddy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dose of Ether. This is your host, Lucian, and this week I'm excited to be joined by Evan Van Ness. Hey, Evan. Howdy. How's it going? How's the Ethereum world treating you? Good. It's a nice hot day here in Texas, so I'm still in a good mood. As soon as it gets cold, I get in bad moods. Does it ever get cold in in Texas? Texas? So funny thing in 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 Texas, like so, I, I you know I live in Houston, and um, it it there's one day every year where it gets down below freezing at nighttime, and every year the news, the you know the local news, they act like it's the apocalypse. Like I mean, they just freak out like on air and like act as if like you know nobody's ever seen freezing temperatures before. It's a really amusing uh scenario to be fair like it we're not like the rest of the country so like pipes and stuff aren't insulated so if it does get below freezing like you there is a lot more chance of you know pipes bursting and being you know super expensive and whatnot but Hmm. even so just the the reaction every every year is hilarious was there like a storm or any flooding in houston yeah, on the like the east side of town and like in the like to the like over on the other side of the ship channel, um, which is not really Houston. Uh, they're like not even really Houston metro. I mean, it's pretty rural. Um, there was a lot of flooding in like some small towns and maybe even on like some of the eastern fringes of Houston. Um, yeah, yeah, just a storm came in and dumped a bunch of rain and. Uh, the soil here doesn't really absorb a ton of water. There's a lot of clay in it. So uh, if we get rain, it will flood. Yeah, I I actually always had this image of like the Wild West and Texas was like mostly desert. And <laughs> but it, it's not the case at all. It's it's massive, but it is incredibly flat. And... So, yeah, I mean, Houston, Houston is um well you know the funny thing too is like you know a lot of people think of like west texas as texas um and historically more people lived in west texas but these days it's something like 80 85% of texans live within the triangle of like san antonio dallas and houston so um cuz austin is within that triangle as well Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, really, like, the the myth of, like, the Cowboys, I mean, there are plenty of Cowboys on, you know, certain parts of the state and whatnot, don't get me wrong, but at this point, like, we are one of the most metropolitan states just because, you know, the suburb, the cities have grown and massive suburbs and, um, yeah, but in the suburbs, everybody still likes to pretend like they're a hick even though they've like been on a ranch once in their life, you know, like gotta, gotta pretend like you drive a pickup and own a lot of guns and you know, all that sort of thing. Part of the, it's part of the myth. Even Yankees do it. It's really weird. Like they move here and then they try to pretend like they're like, uh, 
you know, Cowboys. I don't, I don't really get it, but. <laughs> uh, technically, even George Bush was a Yankee who pretended he was a cowboy. He grew up in Connecticut, so it's no. That's that's not really fair. He actually grew up in in like West Texas. Like, well, he went to school he, in Connecticut. I mean, he was born in Connecticut, but I think they moved to West Texas when he was four. So he grew up in West Texas, and then, uh, of course, he went to he went to high school in Connecticut. Um, I think it was Connecticut or was it Massachusetts, but whatever. Yeah, it was Connecticut. Uh, I actually interviewed then, uh, a 13-year-old um, who is like the CEO of this startup called Pocket Full of Quarters. And he's like, oh, I went to the same high school. I'm going to the same school as George Bush. I'm like, okay. <laughs> nice. But, he yeah. went to Andover? No, I think it was called Greenwich Country Day. And... Oh, okay. uh, yeah, no, it was very interesting that like a 13-year-old is heading the second company to receive a no-action letter from the SEC. Well, it does help that his dad is like a computer scientist and also a VC, but <laughs> it's funny that he yeah, puts his son as the figurehead of the company. Those no-action letters aren't cheap, that's for sure. No, it's it, like they only got two, but I mean the sacrifices that they've had to make in terms of like what it means to be a quote ERC 20 token, um, and still get an sec no action letter. It's yeah, they, they took a lot of like subjective stretching of what it means to be a ERC 20 token. <laughs> it's like, it's not decentralized. It's, um, custodial essentially they can your tokens can be removed they can be like deleted if you use them improperly yeah you technically never really own them either because you're not allowed to trade them except with trusted games that are like kyc'd into the system yeah it's it's kind of crazy just how far away from like the standard that we would imagine erc20 would be um, that was required to be SEC compliant. Yeah. Yeah. The hoops that the SEC will make you jump through in order to get a no action letter and the, how much you're going to have to spend is absurd. And I like, I, I know somebody who like talked to them about getting a no action letter a while back. Like if something that was like so far away from being a security, like they were giving it away and you had to do a lot of work in order to get it. Um, blah 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 but it did like give you like some sort of like similar to like a dividend like return um but like i mean you had to do a lot of work and you got it for free right like uh there was like zero like you know zero uh you know it was obviously not a security but of course sec still wouldn't do it they might have more ch luck actually registering as a cooperative um, there was an interesting use case that we covered recently um, in which someone in Vermont, of all places, actually registered a DAO as a cooperative. And in Vermont, they have all of these like friendly, cooperative-focused regulations, I assume mainly for like, uh, the small agriculture holding cooperatives that they have. And they use that. Yeah, it's an interesting but model. That wouldn't, but... I mean, that might be okay in vermont but i don't think the sec is going to let you raise from non-vermonters right mm, yeah like, that's true 
That's true. Vermont's a pretty small state. I mean, sure, there's money there, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, technically, uh, if you're registered as an LLC um, and you have a cooperative model, um, then I wonder if you can purchase your way into a cooperative. But the example that your friend was giving was that there were giving work in exchange for something that resembles equity. And that's actually more um, similar to a cooperative than um, a security. Right. But. Right. Yeah. Indeed. Agreed. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, there's probably some arcane laws around that. Maybe you're right. There's some like federal carve out or something around some co-ops. That could, that could be. <laughs> So to start our show with some slightly like more humorous news, uh, DevCon is coming up um, in two weeks, actually. And yeah, in two weeks, it'll be over, basically. And uh, someone just put out a Reddit post that they are now going to be hunting you like a Pokemon. <laughs> How does it feel to be a wanted man with a price on your head? Oh, great. Um... <laughs> Yeah, it's the funny thing is at ETH Denver, I like like the weirdest thing that ever happened to me is I'm like standing there like talking to somebody and then I like I see somebody like come up with a like 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 kind of ran up with a camera and somebody like put their arm around me and like they took a quick picture and then they both ran off like not a word was said. I didn't see their faces like har hardly ever. I saw a little bit of the, the photographer's face and I just it was like. It was very strange. It was like, is this how famous people feel? Because it, it doesn't feel good. It feels weird. <laughs> I think I think they're going to list you as an advisor on their ICO, and they're going to use your picture, and you're not going <laughs> to find out about it until there's some kind of like SEC ruling that it was another pump and dump scheme. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I mean, this was you know February 2019. If it had been February 2018, I would have probably been quite worried about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah so to give a little context to our listeners there is a contest being listed on um, the bounties network called ethermon and essentially for uh, promotion um, there's a company that is called off devcon and they're basically encouraging people to tweet out a hashtag with pictures of 25 well-known Ethereans. And they have a funny picture of Vitalik as a Pokemon. But my main concern is that they are basically creating a financial incentive to run up and take a selfie with developers. And you're on the list too, Evan. <laughs> and... It's first of all, I don't encourage people to participate. And second off, I only we looked and there's only like fifty dollars all allocated to these bounties. So like don't start an assassination market over fifty dollars. Just saying. Yeah, so, yeah. So you get like two dollars, there's twenty five people you can take a pictures with, and there's twenty five bounties. So basically, uh I mean I assume that twenty five people are gonna try to get pictures with the Vitalik, although he's probably the hardest person on the list to get a picture with. Um, and then immediately post them for their for their two dollars. Um, yeah, there's... I'm like looking at this, and I mm, I don't want to say who they are, but I'm pretty sure that some of these people are not even going to be there. Like oh. one person in particular, but yeah, whatever. Um, it'll be uh, be interesting. Maybe I should just make myself available at the 
at the very beginning. So like take one for the team, 25 people take really quick pictures of me. And then, you know, all the, uh, all the other people that don't want to have pictures taken with them <laughs> don't have to get bothered. <laughs> or even better, you set it up so that you get half of the bounty as well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Start uh, a bidding a war. Smart contract system. You had to play some code. <laughs> um, or what if I just take pictures of myself? That's an idea. Yeah, I I don't uh, think that's against the rules. So it'd be funny. Centralized if I... Oracle. How how does that work? <laughs> that works. You post twenty five pictures of yourself <laughs> and empty out their wallet. <laughs> the moment the moment I get to Osaka, I just start taking pictures of myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we basically have the mindset that every smart contract even if it's supposed to be a fun little game we spend all of our time thinking how we could hack all the money out of it <laughs> byzantine byzantine based. yeah and um so the other topics that uh we wanted to cover there's one big like i would say a milestone and it is something that uh we've been waiting for for a while and it happened basically a bunch of developers locked themselves in the same room until they got their existing implementation of the phase zero ethereum 2 chain to communicate with each other so interoperability has been implemented in um seven clients if i remember it could have been more since then but at least seven yes. clients seven clients are, are talking to each other and the famous tweet um, that I think was Johnny Race. Uh, yeah, seven clients all talking to each other. So seven out of eight. The one that isn't is um, Parody's Shasper client, um, but because Wei wasn't there, but he did get um, his their client talking to Lighthouse. So um, he's probably not too far away from uh, from getting it all working. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's. Uh, it's good, you know, like they, like to put this in perspective for people, I mean, basically the clients are written um, and then like the, all the fork choice and, you know, and whatnot. And now they had to get the clients talking to each other, um, which is, you know, not a problem that a single client uh, network would have. But since we have seven clients, uh, which is useful in the future for, for governance, right? Because when you have a bunch of clients, that are all performant, then nobody can really take uh, control of the network and put a veto on governance decisions. <clears throat> Cough, block stream. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's a good thing. Uh, basically, now that the clients are talking to each other, it's a matter of auditing and you know optimizing to get these clients as performant as possible and you know some ux stuff mon monitoring and and whatnot to make it you know easy for people to run these nodes and then um it's basically you know go live right so um you know obviously write the documentation and all that too um to make it make it so people can go live but we're getting quite close and one of our listeners previously asked me Will there be a testnet so that you could participate in this process? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, I think that's pretty likely, um, but and I think they're discussing it right now. I would assume that they will do it, but there hasn't been any announcement yet, so not sure. Yeah, and not, not to mention sure. the testnet themselves. Like, there is no smart contract functionality. I don't even think there's a transactioning functionality built into it yet. Um, the transaction functionality is built in but it is set to zero right the blocks are empty basically yeah. it's mining blocks yeah, yeah. but the blocks are empty basically yeah um i mean there will be stuff in there because of um people going in and out of 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 uh, validating for example right or new people joining joining the the chain um so it won't be a hundred percent empty. Like stuff is going to happen, um, but yes, there will tra transactions will be added in a, in a fork. Um, you know, a few months down the line, which is basically the way Ethereum launched in the first place, right? Um, there was a public testnet called Olympic, and then there was Frontier, which was the network is running, but there is there's no transactions and then they turn transactions on in a hard fork a couple months later so yeah nice i think the development in uh the first version of ethereum probably went a little faster mainly because the complexity was not as great <laughs> as the current build so uh what do you think the timeline is until um until we can at least have like transactions on a single shard. I know it's bad to give predictions on the timelines of software development, but what's the, what is the approximate timeline until phase one? Cause we're currently at phase zero, right? Yeah. Yeah. So phase zero is the beacon chain, uh, which will act as sort of like the backbone um, that all the shards will, 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 will hook into uh, that will coordinate proof of stake. Um, when, yeah, so when will shards go live? Um, you know, that's, that's the, the shards will go live in phase one. Um, but it will basically be like data availability. So, um, it'll be possible to like, you know, blobs, um, data blobs. So for things like roll up, they'll be able to use it and, you know, layer, layer two transactions that, need to know that they will be able to make a transaction um so uh and then in phase two is when they'll actually deploy execution environments which will include like the 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 fork the state over from eth1 and it should basically just be like a regular hard fork in eth1 we'll just move it you know move it to eth2 um so when will like phase one go live you know yeah hard to say um Stuff actually seems like it's a little bit ahead of schedule with regards to phase one and phase two. Um, I think it's quite quite possible that we see it at the end of 2020, whereas we'll see phase zero at the beginning of 2020. And um, I think the the other major milestones in between are, like you said, like turning on transactions in the beacon chain, which is presumably a few months after it goes live, and then. Uh, the other big one will be finalizing the ETH1 chain with the ETH2 chain, which should allow us to reduce, you know, proof of work mining rewards like uh, 
by a factor of 10. So, you know, slash, slash mining down to, you know, minor rewards to like 10% of what it is right now, something like that. So the issuance will also go down as a result? Yes. Nice. Yeah. So when we get, when we finalize, it should be, it should be go down, it should go down like something like 90%. And that's probably, it's probably about a year out. I mean, you know, it depends on when phase zero goes live. It depends on, you know, when we decide we want to pull the trigger on, on finalizing it. So, um, mining rewards have already been, uh, reduced significantly not too long ago as is right. So it's not going to be quite such a sudden shock, um, but the security implications of, su- of greatly reducing the mining rewards, um, they won't be as um, as bad once we have <clears throat> the ability to finalize the chain uh, on ETH2 as well. So is that the thinking behind that? Exactly. Got it. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I mean, in a proof-of-work chain, right, like nothing is ever final it's only probabilistically final whereas in proof of stake something will go final so when we take a you know when we we put a hash of the eth1 chain and stick it on the eth2 chain we will say it's final basically um so um you know because of that like will anything on the proof of work chain ever really be that probabilistically likely until it gets finalized by the eth2 chain i'm not exactly sure like probably not but it probably shouldn't be that dissimilar from right now right like if you have a high value transaction and any proof of work chain you need to wait a long time before you know an exchange will accept it for example right because you just gotta get all that proof of work lined up behind it to you know to assume that it is probable ballistically finalized enough for the exchange to accept it on that note um did you hear about the one third hash rate drop from bitcoin uh, i'm not a bitcoiner i've heard that's fake news uh um, really? that it's just a, a metric yeah there's something about like the metric is is imperfectly is imperfect i don't i oh, I, I heard it from like adamant bitcoiners as well and they were expressing concern on such a large uh decrease in the total hash rate over a very short period of time too we'll we'll post some people think sources. that caused the yeah some people think that caused the price crash i mean i don't really i have no idea but well it definitely does require more time in order to um exit um you essentially if the hash rate drops by a third especially in something like bitcoin that increases the amount of time that you have to wait for finality substantially actually right because you have to assume like okay what's the probability of one third of the nodes actually being used maliciously um which is basically the first thing that you have to suspect why did like a third of bitcoin miners turn off their rigs um probably because they are either mining on a different chain or they're trying to gain an advantage to submit a double spend if they get substantially lucky compared to like the rest of the chain. But yeah, it's 
proof of work is one of those things in which like it sounds really safe when you first hear about it and you're like wow that's so much energy and that energy is directly contributing to um to the security of it but in the end all of that energy is used for probabilistic security right so there's a chance that people can essentially mine ahead or behind and yeah that's that's always a risk um it we've seen several uh double spends hit exchanges causing millions of dollars in losses um and it's only really a matter of time until the price of certain cryptocurrencies are so large that it becomes more and more worthwhile to do such sophisticated attacks even on the main chains like ethereum and bitcoin yeah a lot of stuff in there to to we could talk about i think the i mean the interesting thing is you said the 51 percent attacks and or selfish mining and stuff like that i think i mean every basically every gpu mineable chain aside from ethereum is like basically pretty insecure because any percent of gpu hash power could like decide to attack it and of course we saw that in etc but like we've known for years i mean we didn't need the the actual attack to happen to know that it was not difficult to 51 percent attack etc you know like you can hire that amount of hash rate for not not very much money it, it's crazy it's actually sort of surprising that in a space um, where there are a decent amount of bad actors because it's frontier technology, uh, we haven't seen more of it, you know? And, like, Byzantine behavior is sometimes, I don't know, not, not encouraged, but, I mean, it is part of the part of the ethos of the space, too, I, I suppose you could say. The flip side is you also have to see a mark that's worth it because this doesn't work for several transactions you can't try to rip off multiple exchanges simultaneously i mean you can try but it's just probably not going to work um because you're essentially doing a reorganization and how do you make sure that your reorg is actually accurate on multiple exchanges multiple chains you're you're dependent on how much time it takes for exchanges to actually release your funds and that's what a lot of these attacks essentially hinge on and you're dependent on something that's essentially outside of your immediate control um the well people thought that you could you know you could make money like on a derivative of it right as in like i i short on bitmax and then i 51 percent attack etc but then etc didn't even fall in price when it got 51 percent attacked <laughs> so that's true you know, who knows it's uh <laughs> I, I, to, to be honest what that actually really says to me is that a lot of the things uh outside of like really just bitcoin and ethereum like i mean crypto in general doesn't necessarily exactly trade on fundamentals anyway but really doesn't trade on fundamentals i guess is the way i would put it yeah, I don't I think mean, Bitcoin and we, Ethereum trades on fundamentals either. I... But we even saw this like today, this week, like Cosmos had a big like screw up with their uh, hard fork where like it just total snafu and uh, nothing happened. I mean, it moved with the market. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that <laughs> I actually didn't know about the Cosmos uh, snafu. 
that's about the extent of i didn't really follow it that closely um they had some qa issues so something that was supposed to come back in like an integer format came back in like a string or something and so the whole thing just broke hmm. yeah i uh we'll link something in the show notes to explore it and then we'll see if we want to explore it more in the next show but let's talk about something that I mean, it definitely relates to exchange hacks for sure. Um, and it's mixers, specifically on-chain privacy for layer one tokens, specifically for Ether. Like, how do you actually get clean Ether? Because you can't reliably mine your own clean Ether um, in a way that is predictable or small scale enough in which you don't have to join a pool. Um, those days are over <laughs> if you do mine on your personal gpu it doesn't matter if you have a 2080 ti you probably have to join a pool so that you have a chance of making something at least um but how how in the current state of things do you transact in ether but you still like break the privacy trail of it yeah yeah, privacy is a big problem on Ethereum. Um, well, really, almost every public blockchain, and even like the the privacy coins have some of their own issues. As in, Monero has some attacks that are possible. Um, Zcash, you know, it's just uh, hard to use and not privacy is not enabled by default. Um, you know, a lot of people the the way they get privacy is they they give up their privacy to an exchange, right? So they send it to an exchange and then because it's not traceable back to you on chain, if you, you know, send it through an exchange, then it's, you know, you can at least transact with people and not have them know your entire transaction history or at least be able to sort of figure it out. Obviously that has downsides and it's certainly not um, very cypherpunk. Um, so yeah, like how do we make privacy on better on chain is, a huge problem and now these mixers are are starting to you know go live to various degrees i mean they a bunch of them are in production and then the 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 important thing there is also like we don't need 50 mixers we need like one or two right because um the way these things work is you want enough liquidity in the mixer that uh it's not obvious tracing the input to the output right so um, let's hope that mixers don't go the same way as decentralized exchanges in which there's, <laughs> there's so many decentralized exchanges in which they're constantly cannibalizing liquidity from one another. Um, right. Yeah. It's been an issue. And the interesting thing about, uh, mixers has been that they're starting to get ready to, uh, be put on main chain. There's been two main directions that the mixers have taken. One is um, the ring signature approach. Um, I don't know if I would directly associate the ring signature approach with CoinJoin, but why not? It's basically like <laughs> an anonymity set that's determined by like the size of the participating groups per round. <clears throat> They're fairly... like simple to use um, and the gas costs scale linearly with the number of participants 
Um, however, you also have a cap in the number of um, of people who can participate, defined by like the number of people within the anonymity set. So, if we all uh, let's say there's 12 people and we put all our money on the table and then we take our money back on the table, you don't know which one of us is one of the 20 that leave because we basically rotate addresses to new addresses and accounts. And um, basically, no one's really using this on mainnet, in Ethereum, in a production one of the most interesting things about this article that um, I'll post in the show notes that I read is the fact that most people are, or most projects, I should say, uh, have been focusing much more on snark, zero-knowledge, snark-based uh, approaches, and that there are actually some snark-based approaches to mixers that are actually live right now on mainnet. Yeah, I can I can talk about one of them in particular because you know I've used it. It's uh, Tornado Cash, I believe it's Tornado dot Cash. Um, so it's live in production. You can use it. Um, you, uh, but it's sort of a proof of concept as well. Um, definitely, you know, beta software. Um, in that it is one. I forget exactly how much it is, but it's fairly expensive to use, even when gas prices were, you know, back at one or two guay. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's like 10x more expensive now that gas prices are at 10 guay. Um, but uh, basically, you would, it's somewhat similar to to the to the other to the ring sigs approach. Um, you basically deposit your. Um, you deposit your ETH into a contract, and it's only 0.1 ETH. So that, that's why I say it's like proof of concept, basically. Is you and everybody that joins the the pool, like the quote unquote anonymity set, uh, has to contribute this fixed amount, so 0.1 ETH, and then you can withdraw it to a separate address um, and have the the re the pool basically um pay pay that gas so you come out with a with ether that is untraceable untra as to who it is right so if you have 100 people put their 0.1 eth in um like even if you were to be the 101st person to put put your 0.1 eth in and then you drew it right back out like it's impossible to know that you put it in and then took it right back out, right? So um, you're fairly anonymous, even if you just did it like instantaneously. Um, most people usually probably like wait longer time period of time, but uh, yeah, it's the the. Uh, I guess the other thing to say about that is that it's a. Um, they give you you basically get a password, right? Um, and that's how you withdraw your ETH from the from the pool into a a new address is you like you get a 64 i don't actually know that but it's something like 64 character string and you 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 basically input that in and that um that, that that's like the the password right so it's like the 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 note is the is usually the the terminology that they use but um so yeah it's cool and i mean i think is it's, it's it's getting closer to being in production. 
the one thing sorry i've rambled a little bit here but the only other thing to note about that is this this tornado cache um, because it's using zero knowledge uh snarks it needs a trusted setup and if you use it right now they just did their own trusted setup on their own like one machine um instead of like some big massive you know 500 person ceremony or whatever where you only need one of those 500 people to be honest um so again it's a proof of concept you are basically still trusting that they did the trusted setup well but they are going to use uh aztec protocols uh ignition trusted setup ceremony that i think is uh happening in the next couple weeks so yeah the stuff is getting close to being in production that's great and the the reasoning behind the trusted setup being um dangerous if done improperly is the fact that you can use information that was produced during the trusted setup to then um, create fake fraud proofs. So you could essentially prove that you know something, but what you know is actually that you kept some of the, quote, toxic waste after the ceremony, so you're able to essentially find out someone else's password and withdraw their money before them. Um, this is a very similar problem to um, what would happen if the trusted setup uh, set up by Zcash wasn't done properly as well. And uh, that's why they've taken so much effort to create uh, crazy elaborate ceremonies to ensure that their trusted setup is uh, trustworthy. Um, but it also makes upgrading the system very difficult as well. So currently, if you use the current state-of-the-art of, the art of um, zero knowledge snarks, then you can't upgrade the code because it relies on, um, on a previously set up trusted setup. So you would essentially have to repeat the trusted setup every time you upgrade. It's interesting that there are proposals already being considered in which there are some types of zero-knowledge proof systems that are less efficient, that don't need trusted setups, or that each trusted setup can actually be cumulative. So if you want to join a network, you can actually take the computational or gas costs to run your own trusted setup and add security. So therefore, if you have any doubts about the initial trusted setup, you're essentially adding randomness. And uh, randomness is cumulative. You don't take away from it if you try to uh, misuse it, um, which I find to be fascinating. And so much of this is actually like starting to become ready to be used it's definitely ready to be reviewed and the implications of it are going to be affecting the space fairly soon and i think using uh, mixers with zero knowledge proofs is probably the best way i've seen to have uh, anonymity on ethereum and yeah let me know if you think otherwise no, definitely. I I think the only other thing to like note there is if um, for any like, software developer who is uh, you know listening to this, uh, I think it's pretty clear that zero knowledge is the the future of you know blockchains, and I think even in like computer science in a 
bigger way in in some in some ways um and like learning how to use the tools now i think is like a huge advantage um i mean obviously the tooling is not you know it's not going to be as good as like you know just, just like in ethereum the tooling is is not always as you know clean and you know many times iterated over um like it is in javascript but um you know the the there's a lot of stuff that's going to be built using this stuff and there's not going to be enough builders for at least some while. So learning Socrates and, and stuff like that seems like a competitive advantage. And it's also interesting how um, one year ago, there wasn't this level of diversity within zero knowledge proof systems. Um, I think Zcash was the first production application of any kind, not just in blockchain, that used zero knowledge proofs in a production system. Um, but in the past year of loan, there has been a explosion of innovation within the space. And there's a lot of specialization, um, even with this like very strange esoteric uh, subject matter, because honestly, the mathematics behind zero knowledge proofs is probably the hardest I've seen in any part of cryptography currently um, but there has been a lot of space for people to innovate and get really cool uh, features and usage out of different types of implementations and there's even some non-mixer um, type uses as well right so in the article that we're posting there uh, there is a difference and a distinction between what the Aztec protocol is doing and um, the mixers described. Yeah, Aztec is actually, they're, um, they're doing a little bit different than um, the, the mixers, which are basically allowing like, um, you know, the mixer basically fixes the amount. And because it fixes the amount, that's how it like allows you to take out like the, like the secret identity. Uh, Aztec is sort of the flips that on its head and not, maybe it's not the opposite, but instead of doing secret identity, it does secret amounts. So, um, you know, and I think there's use cases for both of those. I think especially like enterprise will probably like, you know, something like Aztec where they want to know the metadata, the metadata of who is transacting, but uh, they might not want to, you know, broadcast the amount to the world on a on a public chain so that's uh yeah i mean that that's happening aztec is is super cool so uh, the, the... Oh, there's there's actually something else i think we should say here um since we've talked a lot about zero knowledge stuff which is that it's not just for privacy it's also for scalability and uh, actually matter labs released their code this week um open source their code for a roll-up chain also called a commit chain also called you know I don't, a million other things um but basically it is uh they, they have like something kind of similar to like a plasma chain like a, a separate like sort of side chain and then it becomes trustless by using you know the the the, the trustlessness of the of the base chain in this case ethereum um by you know running some zero knowledge proofs there um so um I think this Matter Labs' chain will be able to do something like 500 transactions a second. That basically is like 
basically adds 500 transactions per second to the amount of throughput that's possible in Ethereum. So um, yeah, it's cool. And then there's a lot of stuff that we can do beyond that, that because this stuff is just getting started. Like there's the ZK, ZK rollup, which is basically just adding another level level of ZK on onto the rollup to, you know, um, get even more transactions. And Vitalik did a talk about that like six months ago. It's the yeah. future. Yeah. I also heard of uh, Starkware that they're basically building a uh, zero knowledge Stark. So this is um, one of the types of um, snarks that lack trusted setups. So currently they're a little bit more inefficient, especially in terms of space and uh, space constraints. But uh, what they're doing is they're essentially trying to solve the front-running issue with uh, decentralized exchanges. And um, yeah, Starkware is essentially building a way for decentralized exchanges to have uh, transactions that operate off of zero-knowledge Starks. And that is essentially both a scaling and a privacy solution right? Because it's a privacy solution so that you can't uh, actively front run other people's trades, but it's also a scaling solution because you are able to uh, roll up transactions, uh, multiple transactions. And it's interesting that it seems to be like solving problems in most of the places where Ethereum has like essentially come up to a limit in decentralized exchanges there hasn't been a good solution yet for front running Um, in layer two solutions and scaling the issue has been how do you arbitrate all of these transactions on chain in case of a dispute and it's been really interesting seeing how um, some very bright people have been coming up with innovative ways to use zero knowledge proofs to address these problems and privacy is one of them. And I think it's probably the first one in production, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and the Aztec protocol is also in production as well. So the combination of mixers and the Aztec protocol, um, these are things you can already start playing with and you can already start seeing how uh, it might change the way you set up a um, certain type of business online. And yeah, it's... I love talking about this stuff. Snarks are definitely the future. Um, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand them. And yeah, I think the, unfortunately, the most, uh, (laughs) the best explanation that I've heard regarding the mathematics underlying zero knowledge proofs is uh, from the people at, um, uh, I forgot the name of their organization, but they do something slightly more easy so they make fun of zero knowledge proofs as being moon math and yeah these are advanced cryptographers that are working on fully homomorphic encryption and (laughs) they basically are they're like yeah we don't really know how zero knowledge proofs work on the inside (laughs) unfortunately that's where i'm at right now I mean, to be fair, like, just to go back to, like, being a a developer, though, like, 
there are tools you don't necessarily always have to know like the all the insides right like you can you can start playing with Socrates and actually you know produce some some proofs and and whatnot and verify um without you know like to be actually able to use it um you know probably you don't want to deploy it on on chain right right now but on a test net maybe um in order to, to use it like like Socrates Z O capital K Socrates um I, actually Aztec I think also like uh recently um they only they unveiled a toolkit so um mm -hmm. stuff is stuff is happening I mean it's like the the tooling is starting to to get there is that even devs that don't you know want to have the total in-depth understanding of the math uh can still build stuff with it yeah um for example ey uh the one of the big four accounting firms they uh pushed out a repository called nightfall and it makes use of socrates uh in order to have uh, zero knowledge transactions so that they could have um private transactions business transactions on the main chain um and yeah it's it's definitely i was the first time i heard that i'm like where did ey find the developers to work on zero knowledge proofs and <laughs> and my answer was well socrates received an ethereum foundation grant and they basically abstracted away the very difficult um and computationally complex parts of it and as a result um yeah that that basically allowed them to uh to deliver a proof of concept that use zero knowledge proofs it's cool it's yeah it's getting to the point in which it's ready and socrates has been out for well over a year too yep uh there's another one too um the bob imp and whose name i but his the name of the toolkit is uh escaping me for a second um that's of course his git github name because in the space we like to use everybody's um uh, it's called Gen Stark, and it's actually a a JavaScript uh, Stark framework. Hmm. Wow, that sounds like it takes a while to actually compute, <laughs> but it's definitely worth using. And it's interesting because some of the um, some of the mixers as well have uh, JavaScript implementations, so that they could be done on mobile. Yep. Yeah. It's happening. It's happening.gif. <laughs> and... oh, I, I, I revealed my side of the GIF GIF wars. That was GIF. a mistake from my first uh, podcast episode. I'm sure that's the thing. least controversial of all the things you've mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you get a lot of heat on Twitter, but it's not from Ethereum folks, so you're good. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks for coming on to the Dose of Ether. Uh, I'm looking forward to having you on the next one. Cool. Yeah. Enjoyed it. Talk Take care, everybody. See you.